Well, I just flew in today from Southern California, and I, I didn't bring any sunshine with me. But somebody here told me that um, we don't tan here in Vancouver. We rust. <laughs> but you guys don't look rusty to me. And the weather and rain has not dampened your spirits here tonight. And I'm thrilled to be able to spend some time together with you. I'm here tonight because my life has been deeply changed by an ancient teacher. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And, gosh, it's hard to keep track of it. I guess about 37 years ago now, when I was a student at UCLA, I began to give some serious thought to the way that Jesus saw the world, what his understanding of reality was, and also the claim that he made on my own life. And as I began to think about this and reflect on it, it, and it didn't happen overnight, it happened over a, a period of months, probably about a year of giving thought to this, I finally came to the conclusion that Jesus got it right, that he saw reality the way it really was, and I realized that the smartest thing that I could do, I mean, here's a guy who thought he was too smart to become a Christian, you know? At that time, I thought all Christians were dumb or ugly, which is why they went to church, you know, because somebody else did their thinking for them, and they couldn't get acceptance anywhere else, so they went to the place where you had to love each other, because it was a rule. It was right there on the back. Love one another. And so here I am realizing now, as I've thought about it, that the smart money is on Jesus of Nazareth. And so I stepped in behind him in 1973 to be a follower of Jesus. And I have been doing my best to follow him for these some 37 years now. And uh, it hasn't always been easy. It's been kind of like Mr. Toad's wild ride, you know. You got a tiger by the tail. But it's living in reality. And I figured that the best thing that I could do for anyone else is to try to help them to follow Jesus well along with me and the others that follow him. And so I've given my, my life to do that. Ironically, I thought I was too smart to become a Christian, and now I've given my life for a, a defense of the Christian, Christian faith to demonstrate that Christianity is worth thinking about. But I know that not everybody here tonight is a follower of Christ, and that's fine. I'm glad you're here if you're not, but I want you to know that I'm not here to convert you tonight. That isn't my goal. I have a much more modest goal for you. Uh, I want to put a stone in your shoe. All right, I want to annoy you in a good way. I want you hobbling out of here, kind of thinking, scratching your head a little bit. And I hope this is what the whole conference does, is it gets you thinking about Jesus and the way that he saw the world. Because I, I, I think that Christianity is worth thinking about. And I hope to give you something to think about this weekend. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, I hope to give you a lot to think about and hopefully use. Some of you got pens and paper, and I'm glad to see that because I'm going to lay a lot of stuff out for you tonight. I got one shot at you. I get, a, get up tomorrow morning, and I get on my plane, and I fly back to sunny Southern California. So I'm going to make the best use of the hour and a half or whatever I have together. We're going to talk for a while, or I'm going to talk for a while, and I'm going to lay some things out dealing with a very specific challenge on, uh, on Christianity tonight, and uh, then we're going to have some time, if you choose to stay, until about 10 o'clock, where we're going to open the floor for Q&A, so you can interact with me. I don't mind that. If you disagree, it's okay. If you have, want clarification, I'll do my best to respond. I'm 22 years now in talk radio, and uh, people call in, and they uh, give me a piece of their mind. I try to give them a piece of mine. That's the rule there. So we'll do a little of that towards the end. 
But I want to warn you that this is not going to be a three-point sermon, okay? you got to be more than just um, a warm body sitting there tonight. I want you to pay attention. I don't care which side of the fence you are on on this issue. Because um, regardless, I think there's some things here that you're going to want to hang on to and turn over in your mind. You may even want to write some of them down. I've reflected on this particular point that I'm about to make in a moment for a while. And I I realize, by the way, that there are a lot of ways to prove Christianity false. I mean, think about it. If if Jesus never existed, I mean, the game's pretty much up for us, right? Um, If there is no soul... Well, then there's no afterlife because there's no soul to go there. And since uh, Christianity entails the afterlife, heaven, hell, that kind of thing, well, um, planning as if there were an afterlife is is kind of wasted effort. Uh, Paul said if the resurrection in Jesus never happened, if it's just a myth, it's just a story we tell each other to make ourselves feel better, then Paul himself, the apostle, said that Christians are of most people to be pitied. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. You ought to feel sorry for us if we're chasing our tails on this particular issue. If moral relativism is true, in other words, if there is no objective morality, which is a popular belief of a lot of folks in our culture, and I mean our culture collectively, Canada and the States, um, if that's really true, if that stands up, then there is no objective morality. Well, and Christianity is sunk too. Because, um, look at it, you know, Christians believe in Jesus as the what? Starts with an S. Savior, right. And what does he save us from? Sin. Also starts with an S, makes it easier. What is sin? It's a violation of of an objective moral principle, right? What happens if it turns out there are none of those things? No objective morality, no sins, no need for a... Savior Jesus is irrelevant. So you can see these are all strategies that people have adopted. Uh, to try to undermine um, Christian confidence. But there is a bigger target that seems to me to be easier to hit because it strikes at the very foundation of the Christian worldview. And uh, even though we have a complex worldview, it's based on a very simple claim that everything else rests upon. Think about how our story starts. In the beginning, God. Now, if it turns out that that's a false statement... All the rest comes tumbling down. And so we shouldn't be surprised then when this becomes the target that a lot of people shoot at. And, I, you know, I think it's a noble enterprise. I mean, if you think that in a certain sense, if you think that, that, uh, Christ, that religion is a lot of hogwash and it's created a lot of problems like some people claim and the God thing is kind of at the center, let's go after that. And let's try to take that out. And, of course, this is the aim of four atheists that have created no small stir in the last six or seven years. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris. Some have identified them or called them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as it were. Um, but, but they're better known as the new atheists. And they have all written books like God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. That's Chris Hitchens. Um, the God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, Breaking the Spell by Daniel Dennett. And here's the title for Sam Harris's work, The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. He also wrote a book called The Letter to, the Christian, to, to a Christian Nation. And of course, these guys are on a, a crusade of sorts. They think not just that the idea of God is false. People have thought that way for a long time. And kind of the old school atheists thought that, obviously, and argued for that. Christians are wrong. But these guys don't just think Christians are wrong. They think Christians are dangerous. 
Uh, Look at Hitchens' title. God is not great, how religion poisons everything. Sam Harris, the end of faith, religion, terror, and the future of reason. These people think that religion drives us back into the dark ages and actually creates uh, tremendous difficulties in our culture. And I know when you see these books, a lot of folks and Christians have seen them. They're selling a lot. I go through airports all the time, and I see them sitting there. And, uh, you know, be honest with yourself if you've seen the title and you're a follower of Christ. Did you feel a little chill when you saw the title of those books? I mean, they're selling a lot of books, but Christians aren't buying them because Christians are afraid of them. They're thinking, oh, I I don't know what's in there, and I don't want to know. Because I don't want to have my world kind of upset a little bit. I don't want to be proved wrong because there's a lot riding on this issue. I call this the big chill, you know, we back away. And by the way, I'm sympathetic to that because I felt that too. I understand that feeling, but I'm here today to show you that there's nothing to be afraid of. That when you take a look at the arguments themselves that these guys offer, and even though these new atheists are smart, they are witty, they are clever, they are funny, they're compelling, they are rhetorically aggressive, even though all of those things are true, they still are barking up the wrong tree. So I take these guys seriously. I'm not putting them down. I understand what motivates them. I just think they're mistaken about this. They're mistaken about the views about God, and I don't actually think they've done a good job arguing towards that conclusion, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. And I think they're mistaken about the idea that belief in God and religion is actually dangerous. In fact, uh, I have a friend who's a broadcaster in the States. His name is Dennis Prager, and he made the observation that at least in the States, for the last 200 years, it's been pretty much the uh, fundamentalist Christian religious crowd that's been running things, and it's produced pretty much nothing but liberty, prosperity, and freedom. So why the big fear? Well, our strategy, my strategy this evening, is since since the, the... the tactic a lot of times of an atheistic challenge on some religious enterprise, specifically Christianity here, uh, is to throw a whole bunch of objections out and a whole bunch of challenges out. Sometimes it feels overwhelming. Like, how do you answer all those things? And maybe you've got a handle on one or two things, but dealing with them all just is overwhelming and you kind of want to shut down. And sometimes it even, it seems like they win just by the force of the number of objections What I've tried to do is I've tried to simplify the issue. And this is one of my strategic concerns when I deal with these kinds of things, is to back off a little bit. How can I simplify this challenge? And it seems to me that, by and large, the new atheists' challenges fall into three categories. And here they are. They think that reason is on their side. That is, belief in God and religion is irrational. That's the first one. Secondly, they believe that science is on their side, that the discoveries of science have squeezed God out of the picture. And if you're going to be scientific and have a reasonable, rational, scientific view of the world, you do not countenance things like gods and souls and spirits and demons and heavens and hells and those kinds of things. Finally, they think that morality is on their side. And this is evidence when they they raise as a challenge... The, the, the problem of evil in general, the existence of evil in the world as a challenge against theists, and they point at specific 
examples of religious evil that they see in history now and in the past. And by the way, this has gotten a lot of traction, this particular objection. Ever since 9-11, this idea that religion, 9-11, you know, September 11th and 2001. Do you guys use that? I know that's kind of like a normal way of referring to it down in the States, but okay. 9-11, the attacks on the Twin Towers in uh, uh, New York City. Um, ever since then, there has been this sense that, that re- religious folk, uh, particularly fundamentalists, and here no distinction is made uh, with the talking heads that ought to know better between fundamentalist Muslims and fundamentalist Christians, because the fundamentalist Christian likely would pray for you, while the fundamentalist Muslim likely would kill you. And this is why they make the headlines. Now, it's not politically correct to say that, but that's the way it works out. This distinction needs to be made, but these guys aren't making the distinction. You're a fundamentalist, you're dangerous. And so that would include a lot of folks in this audience right here. So um, I want to look at the challenge then. Are they right? Is it true that reason and science and morality are on the side of the atheist? Is it true that, that, that theism, Christian theism in particular, is irrational, unscientific, immoral? Well, I'm going to try to respond to those three challenges here tonight, and you guys can decide for yourself what seems the best answer in light of the issues that we're going to discuss. And I'm not going to try to put anybody down. I'm not going to try to call any names. I'm going to try to just look at the issues themselves. So let's look at them one by one. Is reason on the side of the atheists? Now, this is a hard one to answer without a little foundational work being laid. And the reason it's hard to answer is that, in my experience, most people have not learned how to think carefully through an issue. And nowadays, what strong display of emotion passes for an argument, when in fact it's not an argument at all. It's just strong emotion. And people think if they can just express their feelings, I really, like that, pound the podium, then they've somehow made the point. But emotion doesn't count in careful thinking. In fact, emotion can get in the way. And so what I have to talk about now is a little bit of a foundation of how it is that we approach these kinds of challenges of reason, how we use reason to work through a problem. Because in, in any debate, for example, there are, there are two things that are working. One is substance. The other one is style. I'm not really fond of debates. I've done a number of them. In fact, uh, not too long ago, about a year and a half ago, I debated uh, John Baker over at the University of Calgary on, on, on the issue of morality. So I'll do them, but sometimes I realize that it's not always the substance that wins, it's the style that wins. And some of these... Guys who are debating here are good, uh, how would you, they're good in style. The rhetoric is clever. You ever watch Christopher Hitchens? He's a lot of fun. He's got a devil-may-care attitude. He's got that British accent, you know, which is, that, that wins the argument. They're all, you know, right off the bat. because And, you know, he's usually knocked down a couple of Jack Daniels before he started. And so this somehow endears him to the audience. And so he's got a, a leg up. But how do we kind of set that stuff aside and look at the substance so we can be clear in our own mind whether the arguments themselves are good ones apart from the style? How do we separate the wheat from the chaff? And in order to do that, you need a game plan. Uh, By the way, just as an aside, it always strikes me as odd when people assume that reason and um, uh, belief 
are somehow at odds with each other. I mean, it almost goes without saying. Well, you got reason, then you got belief, you know, as if they're opposites. Think about it. What is the opposite of reason? Irrationality is the opposite of reason, not belief. What is the opposite of belief? Unbelief. These two aren't even related. It's possible to have irrational unbelief. It's also possible to have rational unbelief. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's just kind of a funny thing how people make assumptions regarding that. But there's a reason for reason, and the purpose of reason is to help us discover what's true. And um, the primary tool of reason is argument. Now, an argument is a very specific kind of thing. You think of it like a house. Okay, when you go to build a house, you have to put walls around it and you put a roof up and the the walls hold the roof up if it's a good building. Right. If you've done your your work properly in, in the case of reason and argument, the roof is like the conclusion or the point of view or what it is that you want to persuade people of. God doesn't exist or God does exist. Just saying God exists or he doesn't exist is not an argument. It's just a point of view. The argument comes when you build walls to hold that roof up. And whether the argument is any good or not is dependent on how strong or solid the walls are. Now, the walls are the reasons, the rationale, the points that if you follow them carefully and understand and are clear about the points, they lead to the conclusion that you're trying to persuade people of. And the task of critical thinking is simply to weed out any distracting or irrelevant details so you can have an unobstructed view of the structure, the core argument, and then assess its strength. Are those walls any good? The rhetoric, you know what the rhetoric is? The stylistic stuff, and this makes a lot of these debates fun. Guys doing all the style stuff, and this happens on both sides. But what, what all that stuff does is really obscures the building. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's gamesmanship that's meant to distract in some cases, and you, and you don't end up seeing whether the building's good or not. And you want to be able to say, okay, enjoy all this showmanship. Now, let's look behind there. Let me see if that building is standing, if it's well supported here. So if you're in a position where you're going to do that, and we'll do a little of this here with the new atheists in a moment, but I want, want you to see the method here, because you could take the method and reproduce it in other situations. It's not hard. Yet there are three simple steps for critical thinking. First, you've got to ask the question, well, what's the big idea? <laughs> in other words, what is the point that the person who's making the case wants you to believe? In this case, the atheist wants you to believe that there is no God. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Sometimes it's not always straightforward. Sometimes it's not entirely clear. But you've got to get that in mind first. What is it? What is the specific thing the challenger wants to assert or to convince you of? Second, what are the reasons given to support the big idea? Right? There's your roof and there are your walls, Right? Sometimes this takes a little work to sift through the rhetoric to get down to the specifics, but that's what you want to look for. Now, here's the third step. Very simple. You've got the roof, the point of view. You've got the walls holding it up, allegedly holding it up. The third step is you just seem to, you have to ask the question whether the walls are adequate to the task of holding the roof up. Are the reasons that are given enough 
to persuade anyone or to establish the fact of the point that they're trying to make. And, and you do that by using the word therefore. So you, you, you look at the reasons, this reason, this reason, this reason. You look at where they want you to go, there is no God, you stick the word therefore in there. Because of this and this and this, therefore, this, there is no God. Now, that's pretty straightforward. You follow me so far? Okay. It's, it's, it's actually a lot easier than it is for me to explain it. When you think about it, the task is fairly simple. So what we want to look is, here's he said, they say this and this and this, therefore, no God. And now you just have the task of asking whether it works. Does the therefore fit in that situation? Do those reasons lead to the conclusion? You could find out whether the argument is good. By the way, a lot of times when you apply that methodology to assess, use critical thinking on beliefs of Christians or arguments of Christians, they fall right to the ground. I spend as much time telling Christians that their arguments are bad arguments. I agree with their conclusion. I think they're right here, but I think they've done a poor job of trying to substantiate it. And if, look, if we've got a good point of view that's true, why don't we use the good arguments instead of trashy arguments? So it applies on both sides of the aisle. Okay. And if you do this, by the way, you take the hostile challenges. So you see the book and it scares you. You say, okay, I'm going to read it. Okay, what's the first claim? What's the first bit of evidence? You work it out. You don't panic. You don't run. You don't whine. You just calmly go through these steps, taking each specific challenge one by one, see what you come up with. Now, when I've done this, and now, now that's the methodology, let's go to the issue now. And remember, we're talking about those who are atheists are posturing and arguing that they're the rational ones, that those who are believers in God and religion, these are the irrational ones. By the way, I think there is a lot of irrational belief with regards to religion in general. I'm not a pluralist. I, you know, I respect people who have different views, but it's just clear that everybody can't be right because they believe opposite things. Um, <clears throat> so I do think that they're irrational beliefs, but I don't think that Christianity qualifies in that regard. But when I look at the challenges that the new atheists offer, virtually all of the challenges offered by them with regards to reason fall into two categories. I should say they f- they fail because of the falling into two categories. And the first category of the so-called rational challenges, I'm just going to call trash, trash talk, okay? Now, what I mean by trash talk are kind of clever insults that are used to intimidate the opposition, all right? Charges that have rhetorical impact but have nothing to do with the, any rational case against God. I'm going to give you some examples here in a minute. And... It turns out that a lot of the challenges that are offered that seem like, wow, that's heavy. I don't know how to answer that. These have rhetorical impact, but no rational substance. They're just trash talk. And here I want to teach you the tactical power of a simple two-letter word. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a little giant. It is the power of stopping somebody in their tracks and getting them to think about the legitimacy of the rational case they've just offered. And that word used as a question is the word so. So. Your response to tra- trash talk basically is to agree with the challenge and then say, okay, even if I agreed with you, so what? 
What follows from that? I was at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, a number of years ago. I'd just written the book on relativism. I was there lecturing to a large audience, about this size, on the campus on a Wednesday night. And I, before I had had dinner with the uh, campus leadership, the Christian leadership, and, and I said, tell me what, what's up with the students? I mean, what's the skinny about Christians on campus? How do, how do people feel about them? What's their attitude? And they said, well, they think Christians are dumb. I thought, well, that's a, that's a good way to start my talk. So I was introduced, and I got up in front of the, the assembly of students, and I said, I understand that you think that Christians are dumb. Well, a lot of Christians are dumb. But a lot of non-Christians are dumb too. So I don't know what that gets you. I'm here tonight to show you that Christianity is not dumb. And here I'm using this tactic. What if it turns out that what you say is, and this is your challenge against us, what if it turns out that your challenge is accurate, that your, the point you're making is accurate? What follows from that? Christians are dumb, therefore Christianity is false. Now let's do our thing. Christians are dumb, okay, we'll just give it to you, true. Therefore, there's our word, Christianity is false. Now, let me ask you, does that, do those walls hold up that roof? No, the conclusion doesn't follow from the premise. It's not adequate. People say, well, there's a lot of Christians who are hypocrites. Yeah. Well, actually, they put it this way. The church is filled with hypocrites. And so then I ask them, and when was the last time you were in church? I've never been in church. Well, then how do you know it's filled with hypocrites? You know, that's just another kind of question you could ask. But, but let's just say the church was filled with hypocrites. So, what does that tell you about the truthfulness of Christianity, the worldview that Jesus himself had? Because there are people that are inconsistent in living out their convictions. Because there are people that may even be fakers. They're phonies out there, playing along. Therefore, what does this say about Jesus? Therefore, this says nothing about Jesus. It says a whole lot about those Christians, but it says nothing about Jesus. And so the challenge, well, Christians are hypocrites, is just trash talk. It doesn't get you anywhere. God is a crutch. Okay. So? Crippled people need crutches. For some, God is a crutch, but just because we have a need that's fulfilled by believing in God doesn't mean that God somehow disappears from the universe, because that can be played around the other way as well. A lot of atheists, one could imagine, have emotional needs filled by rejecting the existence of God. So, does that mean atheism is false? No, it doesn't. It doesn't apply to it. Listen, whenever anybody raises an objection against your point of view in a way that challenges you as a believer in this thing instead of challenging the belief. In other words, when the objection or the criticism is on you as opposed to directed at the belief that you hold, you know it's just trash talk. Because you cannot refute an idea by talking about something else. You can't refute the idea of God's existence by talking about how nasty or unpleasant or ugly Christians are. It's unrelated. 
even if it were true, but it's not. That's just trash talk. Now, that's one category of rational, rational arguments against Christians. And this, you know, there's a whole slew of challenges that you can read in these books that turn out just simply to be nothing more than personal attacks against Christians instead of principled challenges to Christian conviction or Christian belief. So you can set this aside. All of the trash talk, it's irrelevant. Now, there's another group that, of, of ideas that I'm going to call us um, silly logic. So you use the trash talk test to weed out that nonsense. Now you've got some other nonsense that you have to deal with. And by the way, uh, I, I have to admit, there are Christians who use trash talk too. And shame on you if you do. And there are Christians who use silly logic too. And shame on you if you do. I'm suggesting, though, this is a way to weed out bad arguments in any arena. And they certainly apply with regards to the atheist's challenge to theism and Christianity. What is silly logic? These are arguments in which the conclusions do actually address the issue. So they're different from trash talk. They're really more on point, but they still fail to make their point. These are called non-sequiturs in logic. Um, in other words, you, you, know, you can't get there from here. If you follow this line, you can't get to the conclusion that you really say you're getting to. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, Christopher Hitchens... And by the way, these are a little bit more difficult, so it takes a little more reflection, but I want you to think about this illustration. Because when I give it to you at first, it's going to sound a little convincing. And then you're going to see very quickly that it doesn't get you anywhere. Here's what Christopher Hitchens says. He notes that any person looking to nature for evidence of design has to face the fact that 90% of all species ever designed are now extinct. You say, God designed this? (laughs) Well, he did a lousy job because 98% of all the species are done for. And he takes this then as evidence against a designer. So what is his point? His point is, maybe we'll simplify his argument here. If, um, if a thing were really designed, it wouldn't go extinct, but things go extinct, so therefore they weren't designed. Anything that wasn't designed... I'm sorry, that that goes extinct, obviously wasn't designed. Okay, so now I want to ask you a question to see whether this this sequencing argument is going to work. Is is he onto something here? So here's the question. Um, How many people here own a buggy whip? Now, in a place like like Vancouver, maybe a few, I don't know. But, you know, buggy whips, you know what those things are, you know, to get the horse moving. But we, we don't use horses anymore, right? So what has, what has happened to buggy whips? They've gone what? Extinct. They're like the dodo birds. They're gone, right? But the fact that these are now, in a certain sense, extinct, and I understand that these aren't biological organisms. Buggy whips aren't alive. So there's a little, there's a, there's a, there's a, a little dissimilarity here with the point that Hitchens is making, but the dissimilarity doesn't matter to the point. Because his point was, if it goes extinct, this proves that it wasn't designed. But there's all kinds of things that are designed or were designed. They're not in use anymore because the circumstances for which they were designed no longer pertain. So when you have 
biological things that were designed for a certain environment, and that environment changes. This isn't the fault of the designer. It's just an acknowledgement that things change. And so then that living thing um, goes extinct. Point here, the fact that something goes extinct has no bearing on whether or not it's designed, as Christopher Hitchens suggests. That's silly logic. So when carriages give way to cars, buggy whips disappear. When wetlands dry up, frogs fade into oblivion. Extinction may tell you something about changing circumstances, but it tells you nothing about design. Hitchens, in this particular objection, I'm not saying every one of his is like this, but in this particular objection, has missed the point. He can't get what he wants out of his reasoning. It's an example of silly logic. Let me give you another example. And this is a very popular one in atheist circles. If I were an atheist, I wouldn't use this. Because I think it makes the atheist look foolish. Um, There is an argument in favor of the existence of God based on the fine-tuned qualities of the universe. The universe is very finely balanced. I'm not going to get into that argument right now. But it's called the teleological argument or the fine-tuned argument, whatever. And it's compelling to a lot of people. And many atheists have been won over by this because the evidence is strong. But, but there is a rejoinder that atheists will use to this argument. And that is, um, okay, you say that God made the universe. Okay, who made God? Now, I'm getting, using a little tone of voice there to make it sound a little silly. But the reason I do this is because this is the kind of question that children ask. Because they don't know any better. Now, Richard Dawkins thinks that's a virtue of his argument. He said, even a child knows to ask this question. And my response is, yes, a child knows to ask this question because it doesn't know why the question isn't appropriate. It's also, uh, who designed the designer is another way of uh, putting this, I, 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 was, I did a three-hour radio, national radio debate with Michael Shermer, uh, who is a, a very well-known American atheist, who is the editor of Skeptic Magazine. And I knew this issue was going to come up because he springs it. A, it and they know better. They ought to know better. But I knew it was going to come up, so I was ready beforehand. And this is if you get involved in these things, you think you might. A good thing to do is to try to think in advance of what might they challenge me with, and then how would I respond it. Because you, you don't have to plan on being quick, quick on your feet. You just plan in advance. And so I had this worked out. And here's what I said, because Michael raised this issue. And I said, listen, Michael, you don't believe God exists. So you don't believe anybody created God. I believe God was eternal. Therefore, I don't think God was created. In other words, nobody in this conversation believes God was created. So why are you asking me who created God? Now, I sprung on him a little bit, but I think it was a fair challenge to him. And because, because, and he knows this, and Richard Dawkins knows this, and Christopher Hitchens knows this. All these smart guys know this. The audience doesn't always know this, so the smart guys are taking advantage of the ignorance of the audience. And what they know is there is nothing about my case as a theist that requires me to answer the question, who made God? Now, they think, well, you're asking who made the world, so I can say who made God. But see, this is a case of willful ignorance as to the nature of the argument. Because when we say who made the world, we only ask that because we know the world was made. 
And I mean, what I mean by that is that, that it came into existence. Everybody holds to Big Bang cosmology. Now this is not really, uh, nobody holds to the eternal universe. So all people think the universe came into existence. So it's reasonable then, given that something came into existence, to ask what caused that. But nobody believes that God was created or designed. So why ask that question of God? Think of it this way. You go to the beach, you see shoe prints in the sand. And you think, well, somebody was here. Do you have a beach? You have a beach here. You actually have, like, sand, right? So this, okay, just checking. I know there's water out there, but I wasn't sure if there was a... You don't actually have surf, though, I imagine, right? Okay. So you, you do? I mean, surf means surf that you can actually surf. I don't mean just a wave. You do that. Oh, well, good. Well, good for you. I, I, I guess you can get out there, break the ice, you know. Anybody, you know. I don't think this is a productive direction for me to go, is it? So you go to the beach, and you see shoe prints in the sand. And you say, well, somebody was here before us, you know, to your buddy. You say, well, somebody... We weren't the first ones on the beach. And, the, and, and your, your friend says, okay, smarty pants, who made the shoes? <laughs> well, you're laughing because you realize when put that way, you see how silly this is. Are you justified when you see shoe prints in concluding that someone was walking there? What do you say? Yeah, I'd say so. The, the, the evidence is pretty clear. That it wasn't, you know, the wind and the seagulls and the seashells doing this thing accidentally. This makes sense. But you realize also that you are within your rights concluding that it was made by someone even if you don't know the maker of the shoes. This is a separate issue. You know, when you find a dead body, um, you know, the first thing you have to do is find out whether the person died, like if you're into forensics, died through natural causes right? Or foul play, right? Well, can you imagine guys saying, well, uh, you know, he's got six bullet holes in the chest, but um, if we say that he was murdered, then we're going to have to figure out who did it. And I don't know who did it. Do you know who did it? No, I don't know who did it. Let's just say it happened by accident. (laughs) First, you have to determine there was an agent involved before you start asking the question, who is the agent? That's the right order. And so to fault Christians because they're, they're, they're arguing from evidence that there was someone, you know, behind the curtain, as it were, making things happen, monkeying with leaving fingerprints around, giving evidence of design. To fault them because they haven't answered the question, who made him, misses the point entirely. This is silly logic. You don't need to uh, know who the manufacturer was to know that the shoes were manufactured or something like that. You don't need to know who the creator designer was in order to be able to see whether something was designed. This is not a sound way of arguing. And like I said, if I were an atheist, I would never say, well, and who made God? As if like I'm scot-free now. I've just ended it. I've, I've defeated the whole theistic worldview. It's, it, it actually sounds silly to say that. But these guys do it and they get... They get a lot of traction out of it. Okay, so it turns out when you take all of the trash talk and you remove that, and then you remove the silly logic, there's not a whole lot left. 
In fact, just about the only thing left that's a substantive, on on point, rational argument against God turns out to be the problem of evil. Now, I will talk about that in just a, a bit. But it turns out that the problem of evil does not help the atheist. It actually buries the atheist, as I'll show you. But I want to make a contrast here uh, with the theist, the atheist and the theist on this particular issue of rationality. Because um, atheists don't usually argue that God doesn't exist. All right. What they do is try to throw up a lot of objections against theism, but they're not going to take the position. In fact, they say they don't have to prove anything. The burden of proof is on the other person. And, um, and, and so they aren't going to prove their point. They're just going to try to keep attacking the other point. That's the standard way of doing this kind of thing. What I want to show you is that the theist can marshal a very straightforward, simple, intelligible, and I think rationally compelling argument for the existence of God. And, uh, and what the argument does is it shows that the case for theism is reasonable. Is reasonable. Now, I'm choosing my words carefully. Sometimes people say, well, prove prove that God exists. Or they'll say, prove to me that God exists. That's even worse. Because the devil's in the details here. What do they mean by proof? In other words, what kind of proof will they accept? You've got to find that out before you commit yourself to anything. And when they say, prove to me... What they're meaning is you have to give me evidence so powerful that it's even going to overcome my own criticism, skepticism, and doubts. And that's hard to do. And when I was asked that question or offered that challenge once, I, I asked the guy, I said, well, like, what do you mean prove to me and all that stuff? That puts me at a disadvantage. He said, okay, well, then give me a reasonable argument for God. He said, okay, I can do that. Whether it persuades you is a whole different issue. But here you go. Here's a simple no-frills argument for God. A big bang needs a big banger. (laughs) A big bang needs a big banger. All right? Virtually everybody believes in big bang cosmology. I know it's controversial in some Christian circles. That's all right. I think it helps our case. Because if the entire materialistic universe came into being at some point... 14 billion years ago or whatever, called the singularity. I don't care how you shape that singularity, whether it's a pointed thing or whether it's a, you know, it's a a shuttlecock now for bad bit. And this is the new thing with, uh, uh, what's the mathematician from Cambridge? I get Dawkins and Hawking, Hawking mixed up. Hawking. I mean, that's his new thing with the grand design. It doesn't matter. There's still a beginning. There's a coming into existence out of nothing material, physical or temporal, because that's the point of the beginning of the material, physical, temporal stuff. What caused that? Now, this is called the cosmological argument. You want the fancy name, but it's simply a big bang needs a big banger. And lots of complicated ways to put it. That's the simplest way, and it seems to me to make the point. What is most reasonable? Every physical thing that began had to have something to begin it. Now, I know that there is a reply to this. And the reply is this. It's possible the universe came from nothing. Okay, what if I said, all right, it's possible. Does the fact that it's possible, and I'm just going to grant that for the sake of discussion, does the fact that it's possible mean that it's reasonable? 
Because we're talking about the biggest issues you can think about here. God, you know, and eternity and all of that stuff. And when you're talking about the heavy issues, you want to go with the odds-on favorites. So is everything coming from nothing? Is that the odds-on favorite? I was having a discussion at a dinner table with a religious family. I was a guest there with my wife and my little girl. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And I'm 60. So pray for me, please. And the young man who's 18 years old announces at the dinner party with his dad sitting right here, religious leader in the community, he announces that he's an atheist. Oh, listen. That's a little embarrassing, you know. For me, I'm kind of feeling awkward. So I'm talking with him. I'm trying to, trying to give him some reasons why. And he says, it's irrational to believe God is foolish. It says no evidence. No, 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 no. A lot of attitude. So I ask him a question. Listen, if somebody came up to the door and knocked on that door, right over there, the front door, what would you do? Would you think the knock knocked itself? Or would you get up and answer the door? You know, somebody, somebody, your roommate says, hey, there's a letter for you. Yeah, really? Yeah, it's over on the mantel place there. Yeah. Who brought it? Nobody. Well, who's it from? Who wrote it? No one. Okay. Now, would you say that? No. You'd answer the door. You'd, you'd wonder who the letter actually came from because, you know, these are the kinds of things that come from intelligent agents, that things cause events. And you'd want an answer to the question of what caused that. It was adequate to the effect. The effect. And uh, as God is my witness, I mean, he wasn't having any of it. He was not interested in being persuaded at all, completely dismissed it. And as God is my witness, 10 minutes after this conversation, the front door, there's the knock. And he lifts his head and he says, who's there? And I said, no one. I didn't make this up. What did he do? And this is the key point. The key point is me, isn't me saying something clever, although it was kind of clever. <laughs> the key point is, what did he do? He got up and he answered the door. Because the reasonable thing to believe is that someone was knocking and not that the knock knocked itself. Listen. There's a big difference between something being possible and the same thing being reasonable. It may seem possible that if monkeys bang on typewriters long enough, they could pound out the works of Shakespeare, but that doesn't mean it's reasonable to believe that. I actually think that uh, Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, not some baboon. That's the more reasonable thing. And by the same token, what is the most reasonable answer to the question, what caused the beginning of the universe? Well, it would have, not nothing, that isn't the most reasonable answer, but rather that something adequate to the effect, something powerful, something intelligent, something non-material outside of historical time, that's the only thing that will do to satisfy. Now, now we're talking pretty much very close to what theists mean by God. And by the way, notice that there was no trash talk in that argument. 
none. We had a couple of chuckles, but that wasn't the argument. There was no silly logic, just a straightforward, reasonable argument without linguistic tricks, rhetorical ruses, rabbit trails, or red herrings. The charge that belief in God is irrational is very common, but it's completely without basis. Believing in leprechauns is irrational. Believing in God is like believing in atoms. You follow the evidence of what you can see to conclude the existence of something you cannot see. The effect needs a cause adequate to explain it. Is reason on the side of the atheist? No, reason is on the side of the theist. Does this prove that we're right and they're wrong? Well, it kind of depends on what you mean by proof. But this looks pretty good for me. It's good enough for my money. What about science? Is science on the side of the atheists? And these next two points are going to go much quicker because I want to give you a break here coming up, and then we'll have some Q&A. Is science on the side of the, the, the new atheists? The new atheists think that science has somehow disproved God. Um, this is an amazingly simple charge to respond to. Um, there are actually two serious problems with this, but we may not get to the second one. Let me just give you the first one. I need to ask you a question. Can you weigh a chicken with a yardstick? Now, I live in Southern California. i got a lot of engineers down there for aerospace, and I know what they're thinking. They're thinking, I can take that, make a balancing beam out of it, and I could do one of these things. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Can you use a yardstick the way a yardstick was intended to be used and get the weight of a chicken? Well, the answer is no, because yardsticks weren't intended to weigh chickens. They were to give weight. They're meant to give Length, right? Okay. I guess you'd call it a meter stick here, wouldn't you? Cultural difference. Does that, because you can't, do they call them meter sticks? What do they call them? Huh? Tape measure. measure. He's a carpenter. That's a carpenter. Okay, we'll call it a tape measure. A metric tape measure, all right? But because you can't, Weigh a chicken with a metric tape measure, does this mean that the chicken has no weight? No, it doesn't. It just means that you've used the wrong thing to measure it by. All right? Now, some of you are starting, I can see the wheels turning. You're starting to get ahead of me. You're thinking, oh, I think I know where he's going with this. Um, here's the first problem with science is on the side of the atheist, that science has somehow disproved God. Strictly speaking, science is not capable of ruling out anything, even in principle, outside of the material realm. Let me say that again. Science is not capable, even in principle, of ruling out something outside of the material realm. Science is really good at doing something, and that is measuring material things. The kinds of things we're talking about, like God, or morality, or souls, or the afterlife, is it clear to you that none of these things extend in space? They don't respond to the laws of physics or chemistry. They're not physical things. So therefore, using a tool that was meant to measure physical things is not going to be very good to tell you much about those non-physical things. Certainly, you cannot disprove the existence of non-physical things like gods and spirits and souls simply because a physical measuring tool does not give evidence for it. I mean, this is the weirdest kind of category error. Actually, Time Magazine made a mistake in a a cover article that they did on the existence of the soul. 
I mean, they had a, like a half an issue just devoted to this, long issue on consciousness, because consciousness is a real weird thing. Consciousness, like your awareness of yourself, that's consciousness. Now, materialists, like the new atheists, they want to reduce consciousness to something physical because their story doesn't start in the beginning. God, obviously, their story starts in the beginning, the particles. So everything's got to be physical, even consciousness. The problem is, is that it's really hard to reduce consciousness to something physical. And so the article then is attempting to struggle with this. And uh, at the end of the article, they conclude... We don't know what consciousness is, so they throw up their hands. We haven't figured it out yet. In other words, they haven't been able to reduce it to something physical. But one thing we know that it's not, there is no soul. We know that. Now, how do you know that? Well, they gave two reasons, so now we got the argument, okay? We got the conclusion, there is no soul. Now we're going to see, well, what are the walls like? Here are the two reasons they gave, and I'm, I'm almost quoting verbatim. Here's the first reason. Scientists have been looking for a soul for a hundred years, and they haven't been able to find it. (laughs) Second reason, there is no conceivable space in the brain for the soul to fit. (laughs) That is an exact quote. Now, you you see the difficulty already. It's like saying, you know, you told me there was an invisible man in your house. Well, I went in there. I didn't see him anywhere. I looked under the bed, and I checked in the closet out in the garage. No invisible man. Well, of course, this doesn't prove that invisible men exist, but you can see how that's the wrong way to show that they don't exist. And by the same token, if a soul exists, it's not physical. And if it's not physical, it doesn't need any space to fit. And so this this argument just misses the point entirely. So, in answering the challenge of science, this thing is cut off on the, at the legs, this challenge against theism, because science is not even capable of foreclosing against any non-physical thing. It is not equipped to do that. Now, it is possible, I think, to use physical evidence to infer the existence of a supernatural being. You can go the other direction, and that's what the Big Bang thing is. Simple cause and effect thinking. If the material world came into existence, this is what we measure by science, something must have caused it to come into existence. But now we're reasoning philosophically and rationally. We're not reasoning scientifically because you can't put science prior to the Big Bang because there's nothing for science to measure. It's not capable of doing that. But that natural limitation of science is not a problem. It's just a natural limitation. There's another Difficulty here, and I'll just sum it up real quickly instead of going into details. Science has not proved that there is no God, nor supernatural soul. They have assumed it. It has become an operating principle. They have simply assumed that everything follows a naturalistic pattern of cause and effect. And by the way, most things do. I think the assumption in principle is a fine assumption. But there are times and certain types of issues that we deal with in which the pattern seems to be broken. First causes, cosmology, the beginning of the universe. Maybe the beginning of life is another example there. But there are some things that defy naturalistic explanation and actually give evidence of a supranatural explanation. And when you try to bring that evidence to bear, it is disqualified out of hand, because it is not allowed to play in the discussion. 
Not because the scientific methodology isn't good, but because you came to the wrong kind of conclusion. And so what's happening in the debate between science and, uh, and religion now is an imposition of a philosophical point of view called materialism. All that exists the material, is the matter clashing in the universe. And no matter how many good reasons you have that, that's, that there's more than just that, it's not allowed to play. It's interesting you'll hear the comments. When you start arguing for God from some evidence in the natural order, the, the scientific guys, they say something like this. Well, that's not science. That's what? That's religion. Do you notice how the labeling there is an attempt to, to disqualify the view? That's not science. That's religion. And one of my friends said, oh, wow, for a moment, you, I thought you were going to say that it was, it was a bad argument. <laughs> all, you di- all they did was label it religion. And notice how if they label it the religion, they could just dismiss it. But notice why they label it religion and not real science, because you've come to the wrong kind of conclusion from the evidence. Not that you've done bad work with the evidence, you've come to the wrong conclusion. And so there is a, the game is rigged, is the point. And I have a long quote I'm not going to read, but it makes the point. And there are a lot of people that are in the business that have made the same point. You know, we can't allow a divine foot in the door, Richard Lewontin from Harvard, uh, a Harvard genetics professor said. We just can't do that. Our, our materialism is absolute, is what he said in the U.S. Review of Books. He wrote an article called Billions and Billions of Demons, January 4th, 1997. He said, that's it. We're in charge here. We've constructed our apparatus to give us materialistic explanations because we're leaving you religious guys out. The game has been rigged. Is science against, uh, on the side of the atheist? No, it's not on the side of the atheist. Um, Inarguably, at least from the, the, the position of the teleological argument, the design argument, the fine-tuned constants of the universe, and the biological realm, uh, some have argued that, that the evidence of science really points to a designer. But it certainly doesn't point to the fact that there is no God. Final thing that they've uh, come up with, and, and they, the way they argue is that morality is on the, the side of the new atheists, and one is the problem of evil in general. I just want to make two observations here. I don't have time to go into deeply, but, but these are, I think these are, these are earth-shaking considering that the number one objection that most people raise against the existence of God is, is the existence of evil. I mean, it just seems to be the most entrenched thing. And, and, and I think there's one of the sessions that you're going to have tomorrow that deals with that. And, and it does need to be dealt with. It needs to be answered in the context of our worldview. But what's curious is that the kind of people who raise the objection, notice what has to be true in order for the objection to even be raised. Notice the objection. How can there be a good God if there is so much good and powerful God, if there's so much evil in the world. You notice that in order for the objection to be raised, there's got to be what? Evil in the world. Do you realize that on a relativistic characterization of morality, I mean, the, 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 the relativist, the person who says, who are you to push your morality on me? There's no right and wrong. You have your view. I have my view. And that, that's relativism. Morality is a personal preference. By the way, if relativism is true, there is no evil in the world. There are just different points of view about what people like and dislike. There's no real evil. So if you're a relativist, you cannot help yourself to this objection and be intellectually honest. And it turns out most atheists are relativists. But they're not consistent relativists. 
Because on the one hand, they, they want to argue relativism, and then on the other hand, they want to uh, complain about the problem of evil. Those things are inconsistent. I, I don't have a lot of time to spend more time on that. Um, one illustration to make it more clear, if it's not clear. On the view of relativism, morality is just a personal preference. It's like your personal taste. Some people like this, some people don't like that. And that's all you can say about it. All right? So a guy says, I don't believe in God. You say, why not? He says, um, Brussels sprouts. You say, Brussels sprouts? What's the deal with... He said, do you ever taste those things? They're disgusting. I said, well, I happen to agree with you with the taste of Brussels sprouts, but I don't understand how that is an argument against God because some people do like them. And he says, I can't believe in a God that would make something so distasteful to me. Well, this is a, this is a shallow objection you can see right away. But that's what the objection amounts to. When, when a person objects to the existence of God based on the existence of evil, when they're relativist. How could God allow these things that I don't prefer? So if you're a relativist, this argument can't even come up, if you're honest. But let's just say you're going to bite the bullet and say, okay, there is objective morality. Then I'm going to ask, ask what is that? When you say things are evil, what do you mean? And people say, well, you know, like murder and rape and, you know, pillaging and, you know, George Bush or whatever. So... No, no, you, what you've done there is you've just given examples of things you think are evil. You haven't explained to me why you think what makes those things evil. What is evil? And, and when you reflect on it for a little bit, you realize, well, evil is when things aren't the way they should be. <laughs> um, I don't know if anybody here is a bowler, but how do you, you probably know how you can tell a good bowler from a bad bowler, right? How? The score, right? People have low scores in bowling, bad bowler. High scores, better bowler. Notice that to say good or bad, better or worse, requires some scoring system. If morality is objective by which we say things are good or bad or better and worse, there has to be a scoring system that we're referring to to be able to point to something like rape or pillaging or whatever as an example of a bad, evil thing, and Mother Teresa maybe as an example of something good. We're, com- we're, we're implicitly comparing them to some kind of standard. Now, my question is, if morality, objective morality here requires a standard, and objective morality is the only kind of morality that you can raise the problem of evil, then where did the standard come from? Where did the rule book come from? It's got to be transcended. It can't be just a matter of our own opinion, and it can't be evolution, because evolution isn't going to give you objective morality. It's going to give you relativistic morality. That's the best it can do. It's going to be very, very difficult to make sense of objective morality, which is necessary to be in place in order to raise the problem of evil, without the existence of God, as a, a, in some way grounding Morality. Now, the challenge still needs to be answered. But notice that only the theist has a worldview in which the objection can even get traction. If you're not a theist, you cannot help yourself to this objection because the objection based on evil in the world does not make sense in an atheistic world or a relativistic world, either one. And so it turns out that the existence of evil in the world is not the best argument against God. This is one of the most powerful arguments for God. It's called the moral argument for the existence of God. And lots of people have written on it. C.S. Lewis was one of them. 
At the beginning of mere Christianity, he made this argument. And Frank Beckwith and I make the argument at the end of our book at, at relativism, but a lot of people have done it, and I think it's a compelling argument. The last problem of evil that is brought up is the problem of religious evil, and Chris Hitchens is especially vigorous about this particular thing. But I actually think that looking at religious evil and then concluding that God doesn't exist is another example of silly logic. Uh, the, the claim, on the one hand, is something like more wars have been fought and more blood has been shed in the name of religion than anything else. It's the greatest evil in the world. And... Um, First of all, it's, it's allegedly a factual observation about history. More blood has been shed by religion. Well, this is just false. More blood has not been shed by religion. The 20th century is the bloodiest century in the history of the world, and in the 20th century alone, conservatively, over 100 million people died at the hands of three men, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao Zedong. What linked them together? A materialist view of the world in which God did not exist. And I know that uh, Richard Dawkins said, yeah, but they didn't do it in the name of atheism, like people do their evil in the name of, 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 of Christianity or God. That's completely irrelevant because there's a natural connection between ideas and consequences. And when people believe there is no moral authority over them to whom they have to answer, is it possible for them to be good anyway? Sure it could be. Sure it is, and a lot of atheists are good. Is it required of them? Absolutely not. There is no one to answer to, and if they choose to do otherwise, and they have the power to do what they want, you get the gulag. You get Pol Pot. You get that kind of carnage at massive levels. That's the kind of thing that follows. And I think Christopher, I'd be surprised if Christopher Hitchens did not lock his home at night, lock his uh, door, his latch. And I, I don't think it's because he's got a lot of religious people that live around him. It just stands to reason that if you believe there are consequences to behavior that is going to change your behavior, this is why we have police forces. Secondly, it certainly doesn't follow that uh, if there are bad religious people, then God must not exist. How about this? Some religious people do evil, therefore religion itself is evil. Does that follow? Silly logic. How about this one? Some religions teach evil. Okay. Therefore, all religions are evil. That doesn't follow either. How about this? Some religious people do evil. Some religions teach evil. Therefore, God does not exist. That doesn't follow either. It's all silly logic. Last thing, as far as Christianity is concerned. One person said, I... Uh, we shouldn't hold a religion responsible for the crimes of its heretics. If you were interested to find out whether Weight Watchers was effective uh, to help you lose weight, and you talked to your friend who had been a, weight, a part of the program for six months, and she said, I haven't lost any weight, would it be fair to conclude that Weight Watchers didn't work? No, you first have to ask another question. Did you do what Weight Watchers said to do? Some comic said, you know, I j joined a gym, and I was a member for six months, and I didn't get any stronger, I didn't lose any weight. And then I realized I had to, act, had to actually go, <laughs> work out. Same thing applies here. How can you hold Christianity and Christ and God responsible 
for what people do who are directly, that is directly opposed to what Jesus told them to do in the first place. If they don't follow the instructions but actually disobey the instruction, how can Jesus be held responsible? And this is why Jesus himself said, Depart, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. Jesus is not responsible for when people go in his name and then do the very opposite of what he tells them to do. Atheists have claimed that reason is on their side, that science is on their side, morality is on their side. But we've seen that reason is not on their side. Uh, They use trash talk and silly logic, and they make no case for the non-existence of God where theists can make a very reasonable case with no trash talk, no silly logic for the existence of God. Science, it turns out, is not on their side. There have been no discoveries in science that in the least way have invaded against the existence of God. Science hasn't proved God doesn't exist. It has assumed he doesn't exist. And morality certainly is not on their side. Evil is one of the best evidences for God, not against him. And religious evil tells you nothing about God. It they tell you a lot about religious, uh, about religious people, <laughs> but it tells you nothing about God. I think the new atheists have failed to carry the day. There is n- nothing in the recent wave of critics that has even come close to challenging the intellectual credibility of belief in God. And on the contrary, I think... Uh, and maybe this sounds like strong language, but I'm going to stick with the psalmist here in light of the evidence. We are well within our rational rights to affirm with the psalmist, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Thank you.